Speaking of reliability, a podcast with good friends talking with you about reliability engineering topics. Welcome to Speaking of Reliability. This is Fred Schenkelberg. And good morning. This is Greg Cutchins. Hey, Greg. Hey, you sent me a article the other day. And of course, then I start, it's like you buy a red car. Now you see red cars everywhere. I saw like three articles and I sent you one of them. And it's all about um, supply chain stuff and people, uh, companies all over the U.S. And it's been going on for a couple of years now, but people bringing parts of their supply chain or all of their supply chain uh, back to the U.S. And it, it's all kinds of stuff in there to talk about. But one of the articles caught my attention was, is like, mm -hmm. we don't know how to make some of this stuff <laughs> anymore. And um, we don't have the skilled labor force that's ready to jump into all of this new production. And I was like, hmm, that's, to me, that is a big, huge hurdle to overcome to actually get consistent, good components that don't cause problems down the road. Boy, so where do we want to start with it? You know, there's obviously the, we want to reshore from China, which is basically one risk. So, you know, if you're, if you're, uh, if you're basically making products or designing products, even worse in China, and you want to reshore, bring the manufacturing design back to the U.S., that's one risk component. But you brought up the other component, which is really interesting. We don't have the folks anymore with that detailed knowledge as to make the machines, as to design the products, you know, and that takes generations. Well, there's, there's parts of that, but I think there's, I mean, just, I've been in in factories in China and especially for consumer products where you're changing the model every couple of months, they don't automate a lot of it. And some companies do more automation than others because of their volumes. It makes sense to do that. But I've been on, on floors where it's shoulder to shoulder people doing each individual step and attention to detail matters and they have the right assistance and gauges and, and microscopes and everything and lenses, everything they need to do that particular step well. And they, it's amazing. It's, it, and it's so flexible. If something changes, a component changes, you don't have to redesign your factory to take care of it. You just say, Hey, you know, build, do it this way now. No. Okay. And, it's part of the process. The issue I run into is that there was a report oh, a couple of weeks ago from the, oh, I'm forgetting the, the organization, but it's an organization that represents mm -hmm. manufacturers, U.S. Mm -hmm. manufacturing companies. And they're saying that in the last year, they have hired something like 30,000 people into factory positions Um people that are making stuff, you know, driving the forklifts and turning on extruders and, and managing equipment and stuff like that, as opposed to only 15,000 that got hired the year before. And they were touting that as a big gain. And I'm thinking 30,000 people, that's not a lot, <laughs> you know, and it's been in the news of the last two years is people just can't find 
people to at any level, the local barista, you know, is, is a hot commodity they can get a pay raise going across the street. So they leave. Um, and then that person that running that coffee shop can't hire somebody. It's got a, you know, it's now stuck with shorthanded, but the story I'm hearing is that a good amount of the manufacturers in the company, existing in the country are having trouble finding labor having trouble finding people that can drive a forklift for example and i'm using that as a rough analogy of somebody that has some skills at some level but even worse if you need a a really craft quality type welder for example or you need somebody that really can uh, manage the assembly of a complex piece of equipment and handle it. Um, there's just a labor shortage in general, but in manufacturing, it's just twice. As, and then we run into it over the years is the, in maintenance uh, factories is that the, they just can't find people that want to get into the trades and do the plumbing and welding and, and mechanical work to keep equipment running. They just, there's just not a, a stream of people going into those crafts. So, so I, the, to me, the big risk of, of onshoring uh, is a response to the lockdowns in China, shutting down factories, the, the transport issues, the, all of the disruptions that we've gotten over the years. But it's also, I mean, there's geopolitical, there's all kinds of stuff that goes into it. <laughs> but I think you mentioned it when we were getting, just chatting before we start, it's a trade-off. It's a, what are we, you know, we're running away from one problem, but are we really thinking through the new problem? Because if I have to train a whole workforce or I have an insufficient workforce and I still have production demands and want to get products out the door, um, I worry about it from a reliability point of view is, well, what quality do am I going to have? Because the, for, the example I, I, I use is, is somebody's looking at a circuit board, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. If they're not familiar with how soldering processes work, how it should look and should not look, how, you know, even knowing what to look for, you look at a circuit board and it's like, fine. You don't know that what it looks like when it's not right. <laughs> <laughs> you don't even know what to look for. And, and I've run into so many people like that. And, and to me, and I've had lots of training and lots of experience looking at circuit boards. And I could look at one and go, that's an issue. We got to fix that. And they're looking at me like, how do you know that? <laughs> you know? And it's says, here's the evidence. Here's, let's get on a good microscope and let's cross section it. And I can show you the details of why that's an issue. And they're like, oh, how'd you know that? Well, I've been looking at these things for decades. <laughs> you know, kind of thing. <laughs> That, I think, is the heart of the issue, is that as we bring up more onshore production for facilities that are doing manufacturing jobs, is it takes time for the folks actually on the line to, to have the experience and skill set to determine what looks right and what doesn't look right. And in the end result, in my forecast, is that we get a higher proportion of products that are just not good. And won't last for the customers. Well, I'll give you a couple of stories, Fred. Um, my daughter, you've met Margo, mm-hmm. was a mechanical engineering student at uh, Oregon State. And since day one, I should say day one, probably when she was 12, I would force her to do mechanical stuff. Mm-hmm. 
you know, refund a wrench, change a tire, you know, simple stuff. Yeah. And I was amazed when she started telling me how, uh, how uh, I'm trying to search for the right word, um, you know, because I want to be gentle about this. These are mechanical engineering students at a really well-known school, Oregon State, who have school smarts, but don't have mechanical smarts as to, you know, what do you do with a wrench? Mm-hmm. What do you do with... <laughs> but, but you've seen products where a mechanical engineer on their CAD machine designs this beautiful piece of equipment, but in order to assemble it, you need clearance for that wrench to have enough lever on it so you can actually turn the bolt or tighten the nut and get the right torque on it. And if that's not included, and if you've never built stuff by hand, (laughs) (laughs) you wouldn't know that, you know, it's, Oh, I'm just, just, here's the piece of equipment and it's on the CAD machine. It doesn't show the encasement or where it's located in the vehicle or, you know, anything else. And, so Margot has the advantage of having that intuition or experience is probably the right word to say, oh, well, these are things I need to include in this because if I have to change this uh, pump out, I need access. <laughs> you know, so the, <laughs> the bolts need to be placed in a drawer. And I ran into a product where the highest failure rate uh, was due to this connector falling off in mm-hmm, the transport. Mm-hmm. So it would be dead on arrival, right? And I said, why is that? You guys know it's a problem. Why can't you fix this? And I says, come here, watch how we have to build this thing. And they use one of these long telescoping rods with a mirror on the end of it mm-hmm, and some mm-hmm. extra lights. And <laughs> they would only like two people in the factory had small enough hands that they could get it down to the bottom of the equipment where this cable came through the case. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. then they would use like two fingers and try to maneuver <laughs> it into the right place. And the design of the connector had no feedback mechanism or locking mechanisms. So they kind of had to nearly blind kind of guess whether it was seated correctly or not. And if it was off by like one or two millimeters, it would vibrate right out. And I was like, who in the world designed this? Let's go talk to this idiot. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it reminds me of some of my uh, uh, design failures. So what do we do going back to this thing? If we're going to reshore, how do we train an entire generation on simple manufacturing? How do we retain them? How do we attract them? I don't know. Yeah, no, that's, that's a big question beyond my part. I, from my point of view, it's like, you need to be very careful with the design so that it goes back to the, remember way back when, when it was, um, there's a big push for design for manufacturing and get rid of screws and top down construction and, you know, mm-hmm. all these things, you make it so that you could only assemble it one way in the, the I remember one professor, <laughs> I, I took a class on this and he was like, the ideal is that if you take all the components for your smartphone and put it in a bag and shake it up, it would self-assemble, <laughs> you know, and just work. That would be ideal. And I'm like, well, I don't think that's how it works. But he got the point across. And, and he showed the example of a uh, electric drill. He, had mm-hmm. a, he mm-hmm. found an electric drill, like a late 50s, early 60s vintage, and took it apart. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. counted all the parts. There was like 17 different screws 
in 16 <laughs> different types of screws <laughs> of those 17. Um, and they had like six different ways to make electrical connections that, and it had hundreds of parts. And then he took apart a black and Decker that was a modern, uh, one in, in this, when I took the course it was years ago, it's probably gotten even better. It had seven parts and one screw. Snap on. Yep. Yeah. You okay. know, you lay the bottom case down, you drop all the parts in, they intermesh and just work just perfect. And, and it was a snapped in uh, electrical connection, mm-hmm, one mm-hmm. piece, and the screw is required because you needed a tool to access that type of powered equipment. That was the only reason they had a screw in it, <laughs> because it was required. <laughs> <laughs> and it took seconds to build it, to assemble it. But you had a, a you know the transmission or the the uh, the motor and the gearbox and stuff in the chuck were all, you know, those were three yep. main parts and two cases and a screw, is yep. in a wire coming into it, and that was about it. But it was designed such that it those parts were built other places or assembled and uh, by teams other places. But the final assembly was just amazingly simple. And a lot of our parts and products are that way. Cell phone is not a good example of that or a car. <laughs> uh, so onshoring products like that, I don't think will be very hard. I think your point of retention and finding people that want to put this stuff together all day long, that would be the challenge. But hey, Amazon has been hiring hundreds of thousands of people to fill boxes and put tape on it. So it you know there's a market there there is a skill set there for doing rote work and you know with small variation type stuff and they can get it done but it's the the folks checking the solder for example that takes some skill <laughs> looking at welds and making doing the welding and making sure the automated machine is actually welding correctly for example um there are plenty of of positions that do need the experience and training and how to do that we don't have the infrastructure for it we don't have the trades in our community colleges like we should we don't have apprenticeship programs that bring people up with these experiences and stuff we haven't had really any manufacturing except for some prototype shops here and there that Mm -hmm. we just we don't have the workforce to scale up to do that. And that's to me presents the risk of we're just going to, unless the teams really pay attention to their processes and how things get assembled. It's mm-hmm. not as simple as saying, all right, well, we'll take pictures of the factory over in, in Thailand and then we'll, we'll recreate it here. I don't think it, I don't, even when a factory moves from China to Vietnam, there's problems. <laughs> I've never run into a move of a product production line without issues. <laughs> but bringing it here when you have the lack of depth of experience, I think that presents a whole new problem. And being very cognizant of that phenomena of needing to pay attention to this is a whole new set of risks. Interesting how you bring it back to risk. Yeah, it's um, this whole onshoring craze, uh, if we can use that word, is I think going to accelerate because we don't have the opportunity anymore to move factories from China over to Vietnam or 
or let's take Taiwan. I don't know what the what the current term it would be, but uh, yeah, it's going to be a big challenge, and we need to basically at least have ten years uh, to be able to do that. Um, and again, it's going to be a risk issue. We're trading one type of risk, meaning offshoring, to another type of risk, which is. <laughs> bring the factory into a well, greenfield. Yeah, well, it's just throughput and and, and quality. Uh, it takes trained people and trained eyes to to assemble vast majority of the products that we have. Um, and there are exceptions that are just simple. But even then, if you don't, and you've run into it, where a, a part of the process is it's all ready to go and you pick it up, <laughs> and an experienced person would say, hmm, this is light. Maybe there's a part missing or it rattles a little bit. And you go, hmm, I don't think there's supposed to be anything loose. But if you don't have even basic experience to say, to, to recognize those clues as a problem, you put it in a box <laughs> and ship it. You know, it's, that's the part that worries me. And, and it's the processes and techniques and assembly, you know, culture is, is not trivial. And I, I, to, I, and I run into execs that say, oh, we'll just bring the factory back here and we'll put a, you know, shed out back and we'll build everything in there. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> good luck. <laughs> yeah, right. Lots of luck. Well, I'll just sort of bring up another story. I'm driving down the road. And I'm amazed at somebody's got a flat tire and a guy is outside on a cell phone calling in a tow truck. And then I ask Margo, well, what's going on here? And she looks at me like <laughs> I'm the village <laughs> idiot and says, well, the guy doesn't know how to change a tire. And maybe it was one of those double dub moments, but I thought that most guys, all guys, were trained from day one on how to change a tire, but no, uh -oh. they reach for the phone and they get well, AAA. <laughs> well, yeah, well, you know, when I first started driving back in the dark ages, it was <laughs> tires went flat pretty often. And we lived in the country. So one of the chores, once I got my driver's license, was to run uh -huh. our garbage over to the county dump. And like twice a month, I get a flat tire there. And so it was just a, and there, we didn't have cell phones. You couldn't call AAA from the dump <laughs> <laughs> kind of thing. and Or on the road between. And the chance that somebody else would be driving by, you know, <laughs> with the tire, you know, with the equipment you needed to do it. And so you had to, you had all the, I had jumper cables in my car. I mean, I didn't have a modern car and steel belted tires and all that stuff. So you had to know how to do this stuff. Right. And it was just required. But my kids have, you know, driven for years and they've never experienced a flat tire. <laughs> they've had dead batteries because they leave the door open or something like that. But even that is way reduced because there's circuitry in some of the cars that say, hey, we're going to turn this off now because your battery's getting low. <laughs> you know, we won't be able to restart if you leave this going. So it's this, our systems have gotten so much better. Our tires have gotten so much better. Um, hell, some people I've run into don't even know they had a spare tire in their car. <laughs> yeah, and that, that'll be our next podcast. So just make give you a couple of rates. 
I went to a auto place and I asked him, okay, I need to have this done. Um, the book says it'll take four hours to do this work, mechanical work on the car. What's your shop rate? The guy looked at me and, and said, 135 an hour. I said, okay. And by the way, this is not a dealership. Mm -hmm. This was a just on the corner guy. Mm -hmm. Then I was talking to another person, again, coming up the trades. And I said, oh, you, you're a welder? And I said, he said, yeah. And I said, well, what type of welding? And mentioned TIG, MIG, you know, a stick, you know, all the usual forms. And I said, oh, great. Well, I know a little stick and blah, blah, blah. So we were swapping stories, swapping lies. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, what's the day rate for you guys? He said, 2000 a day. And I said, interesting, 250 an hour for a welder. He says, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and we're in huge demand. And I said, good for you. So the issue is getting people into the trades because trades are paying very, very well these days, very well. And the problem is a lot of kids, a lot of people, don't want to get their hands <laughs> roughed up. Yeah. Uh, and what you also see is people don't want to, you know, work in a coffee shop doing the cleaning and, or, you know, work here, there, or other places that they want to be the next entrepreneur, next software guru, or, or you know, or what it's behind a desk. And, um, and it's just day after day that I'm hearing stories of folks just <laughs> having trouble finding just basic, you know, people to, to fill positions so they can get their coffee served, for example. Part of the overall issue uh -huh. is uh -huh. that we've made, this is speaking just from my experience in the U.S., is that it's like in, in high school, it's almost always a college track or you're not, <laughs> there's not another option for you basically. Mm -hmm. Right. And going to college is seen as the thing to do, but I've seen, and I've run into people that they've gone to college, they get a degree or they, a good number don't finish and get a degree. Um, and they, but they get a degree in something that they can't find a position for we don't need that many history majors <laughs> you know there's there are really brilliant people in the field of history that do a great job in 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 the academic world or in the in publishing world or in in the museums and places like that it is a great job but there's only six of those <laughs> you know you're going to get thousands of people with an art history degree who are going to be flaming you online for well, i know well, that'd be nice we know somebody's listening but you get my point if you go to school and you take underwater basket weaving you know it just doesn't work that way uh but it, there's a lot of, well, I remember taking physics in college and it was a very small department. Very few people actually went into it. And, I, and it was asking my, you know, my advisor once, why are there so many, so few people taking physics or chemistry or the hard sciences type stuff? And he goes, uh -huh. well, you just said it, it's hard. Uh, there's a whole bunch of my classmates that, that their whole strategy was to take the easiest classes they could possibly do. So they still graduated. And so, well, are you going to learn anything that way? And I'm like, no. <laughs> so it's like, okay, whatever. So when you use words like path of least resistance, mm -hmm. that's really a risk decision yeah. based on their risk appetite. 
Think about that. Oh, it is. It very much is. And in set of priorities <laughs> and what they wanted to do and not do and but whatever. But anyway, I think over the next couple of months or a year or a couple of years, as this onshoring process continues to pan out, we'll see. Um, you know, I'll be happy to be pleasantly surprised that the U.S. manufacturing can find the talent they need and bring it up to speed and and um, and not be an issue. Yet I pretty much at my point of view right now is that we've got a lot of work to do to mitigate, here's another one of my risk terms here, the, <laughs> the, the, the challenges of bringing up on uh, a new factories and new production facilities. I, I don't think it's, I, it cannot be underestimated. And that, unfortunately, I've seen it underestimated way too many times. I agree. I've had to evaluate some uh, firms in China and Japan, uh, basically first tier suppliers that the prime U.S. company OEM wanted to bring back. Mm -hmm. And uh, the bottom line is they kept the places, They, in both cases, they kept the factory in China and in Japan. Mm -hmm. Why? Because they couldn't get the people in the U.S. to make the products to the requirements. Again, think quality, right? Yeah. That the company had. Yeah. No, it's, it's, um, and there's all kinds of issues that's involved in that. But anyway, it'd be interesting to see how this all pans out. And, and if you're listening to this and made it through our, our <laughs> rambling here for so far, and if you got an insight in this, if you're, you know, working to bring something back on shore and, and uh, into the U S and, and what are the challenges you're actually facing? And, you know, I'm hearing stuff through the news and a handful of colleagues, but uh, what's your experience? We'd love to hear from you. If you have any, uh, um, questions or, or thoughts or areas you'd like us to discuss, let us know. Head over to ascendoreliability.com slash go slash SOR. And Greg and I and the other hosts of the show are available through LinkedIn and our about pages on the site. So we'd love to hear from you and what your experience is. So uh, with that, Greg, I think we'll, we'll wrap this one up and, and, um, and I'm, I don't know. They don't put markers on it. I mean, they say made in the USA. I'll have to keep track of ones that don't have that now and which ones change. Maybe we could do a little measurement system there. <laughs> <laughs> we could talk about that some other time. Big issue. Made in the USA or made in India and made in China. Anyway, Fred, great discussion. Thanks again. All right. Thanks, Greg. We'll talk to you soon. You bet. Bye-bye now. Thanks for listening to Speaking of Reliability. We invite you to join the conversation if you have a question or a topic that you think we should discuss in a future show, please let us know. You can find a comment box below the episode show notes or just leave a note as part of a review on iTunes. <laughs>